The views of this program are not necessarily the views of KJLL Radio, its management, or its sponsors. The host is solely responsible for its content. Enjoy! given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show, and uh, it's a beautiful uh, Saturday afternoon. Reminder, 7th Annual Tucson Record Show, November 6th, Sunday, November 6th, doors open at 10 o'clock in the morning at Las Casulitas Event Center. Don't miss it. Um, you know, I just want to get right to it. Over the course of the Jake Feinberg Show, I have interviewed many big names in jazz. Carter, Duke, Handy, Brubeck. But it's the primary goal of my show. It's what my show started out being, was to interview players that helped me fall in love with jazz. Guys who played Jacks on Sutter Street in San Francisco or at the Jigogu in Japantown, or at the Keystone Corner. Certain individuals made albums as leaders that helped me get through difficult times in my life, made me jump for joy, or be moved to tears. Not to mention the fact I got to pass on the beautiful music to my daughter, Hannah. I'm forever grateful. My guest today has done all this for me and so much more. I'm so excited to be able to talk to him. Michael Howell, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. How you doing, man? Uh, if you, it's so good to talk to you, man. And um, I, I just wanted to actually start out by saying I, I just I was hoping you could say a few words about the the late, great drummer Eddie Marshall. I know you played a lot with him. Oh, man, what a loss. What a loss. Yeah, Eddie Marshall was one of those guys who could play anything. And he was such a joy to play with. You know, I don't know if you met him. I never did. But he had a great spirit. He loved to laugh, tell jokes, and he made you feel good and got into whatever you were playing to make it sound better. I mean, what else could you say? You know, he swings. And he played recorder uh, as well as any saxophone player. It was just amazing. Wow. He was, he's really going to be missed in San Francisco, man. I'm, I miss him, man. He was a special person, you know. Yeah, and, and uh, it's sort of like the more and more I come into this, uh, as I continue these, these interviews, it was those guys like Eddie Marshall and, and Billy Higgins who, who, who inevitably always had a smile on their face, and they could always make you feel upbeat no matter what, no matter what kind of... They could be in the worst mood in the world, and they were still smiling. Yeah. It was love, man. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Billy Higgins was like that. He could play... And he had a style that he could play the same way with anybody, and it worked because it was... <laughs> so together, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true, and I, I, um, you know, but Michael, I, I kid you not. I mean, like I said, I, I, I mean what I say in that intro, and 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 the truth is that that I wanted to take take some time to talk a little bit. You grew up in Kansas City, and I know your dad. You know, he instilled an appreciation for a lot of the heavies of the time period, Bird, 
and Dizzy and those guys. And, and I was curious as to how you were exposed to that music. Did, was there AM bleed-through channels, or did you have a record player? How did that work? Um, actually, uh, my father didn't, he liked, didn't like to hang out in clubs, and he knew all those musicians. He knew Bird and uh, all the Kansas City guys. And the guy that got me started, uh, his name was Dennis Hur- Hurley. He's from a family of uh, uh, brothers. All were musicians, all good musicians. And the guitarist was Dennis Hurley. And he was giving my father guitar lessons. And I would sit there and listen to him uh, uh, play and talk about all these musicians. You know, I didn't know <laughs> how important they were at the time. Sure. But they seemed to really respect them and like them, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I heard her music, and they would play it on on a record player. I didn't, my mother wasn't into jazz that much. <laughs> what would she do for a living? And, uh, I mean, she had on whatever the latest thing was on the radio. Of course, in Kansas City, they did play a lot of, a lot of mixture of things, really. A lot of, that, I'm sure a lot of blues, you know. You know at just, that time, uh, of course, Count Basie was the rage, you know. Because everybody knew Count, and he had made it big, and and uh, yeah, they played blues, you know, a lot of, mostly like uh, uh, Mr. Five by Five, Jimmy Russian, and stuff like that, <laughs> Joe Turner, you know. Yeah, it was it was uh, beautiful. You could hear music when you walked down the streets because the clubs would have uh, uh, speakers out where you could hear them, and music started in the evenings. I mean, early in the evenings, you know, before it got dark. And, so and I just heard it all the time. That's what I thought music was. <laughs> it was jazz. <laughs> right. I mean, it was it was a popular music. And then also it was this idea that you would play, you know, things would go on later into the evening, too, uh, where you would have, and this was probably more, more your scene, and I don't want to rush into it, but the idea that, you know, Clubs could stay open from one to five. They may not serve alcohol, but you could at least see you could see music. Guys could get their sound out. I mean, there was just that much more opportunity. At least, at least in California, I know that was the case. Yeah, I, I think uh, all over the country, it, it was just very different. Where musicians played all the time, everywhere went to each other's house. Clubs stayed open much longer. You know, because clubs were a thing that people did. They go out to hear music. You know, I don't think they do that as much anymore. You know? That's exactly right. They'd rather just stay inside, and they have all their, you know, surround sound equipment, beautiful, beautiful atmospherics. But so then, Mike Michael Howell goes to you. You go to Calif- uh, Colorado, but I read somewhere that this is a great line. You found the academic atmosphere stifling. Okay, and so you picked up and you moved to San Francisco in 1964. And what did you see? What did you? What was there when you got there? What did you discover? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Denver was kind of stifling. It, you know, <laughs> I, I have to admit, though, I, I can't completely put it down. There was some, matter of fact, uh, the trumpet player that was on my first album, Julius Ellerby, was the one that really gave me a lot of help when I was there. I was walking down the street, and I heard this trumpet playing all the Clifford Brown stuff. I said, my God, who is this? And I knocked on his door and said, hey, mister. <laughs> You know, you sound like Clifford Brown. And he asked me what I played and guitar. And he, oh, there's an opportunity. He got somebody to play changes for him while he practices. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good for him. And it was good for me because 
he taught me a lot of tunes, and he was one of those people that played in all the keys and so forth. So, uh, and uh, so it, it, you know, it was wasn't totally bad, but it, <laughs> I was ready to go. <laughs> could you could you talk? A little, I mean, I I didn't mean to exaggerate. I know what you mean, but it was it was too academic. Well, I mean, what was it about it that it just wasn't free? I mean, because you went to the freest area in the country. So what, was it just too restrictive in some st- in some sen- sense? Um, we just had, just, I don't know where they got that. It was too academic. It was just uh, it's not enough musicians and people to play there. And, and it was a whole different atmosphere for me. You, you have to remember uh, in the 50s, I came from Kansas City. When I got to Denver, that was the first time I had been around uh, any white people. Right. Kansas City it was all African American. The stores, the schools, you know, everything I did that was in that environment. And this was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was a unique experience for me, you know. You know, there was a saxophone player there getting off the subject just a little bit. His name was Johnny Hartsville. He played just like Charlie Parker, just unbelievable. And years later, when I was with Dizzy, I says, asked Dizzy, I says, you know, there was a guy in Denver that claimed that he played like Bird before Bird did. And Dizzy said, yeah, Johnny Hartsfield. I didn't even Dizzy already knew. I said, wow. I said, is that true? He says, yeah. Well, he, he said he didn't last long. You know, he had some personal problems. <laughs> Right. The, and he left. Of course, Dizzy would know that. I mean, I've talked to enough guys. Uh, just uh, the, the plethora of knowledge is just confounding. Uh, and the fact that he would know that is just classic. But, uh, you know, uh, that was just interesting. He was, that's one of those people that was in Denver that hardly anybody knew about, you know. Uh, but I got to San Francisco. We get back to that. I went out there. Uh, and I heard uh, Wes Montgomery was there. And I found him the first night I got there. At the Booker T. Washington or where? No, it was a place called the Playpen. Oh, boy. This Playpen. is exactly what I want to hear from Michael. This is why we have Michael Howell on the program today. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. And I, I got there. There were only five people in the place. Oh, it was... I mean, I didn't mind because <laughs> I'm getting to hear Wes. <laughs> exactly. I was so disappointed there were only five people in the place. This was with the organ trio. Uh, oh, I forgot the organ player's name. Great organ player, still around. Paul Parker was playing drums. And I guess uh, Wes noticed, could tell I was a guitarist because when I walked in the door, he had this cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> and he took it out and played one of those uh, ripping chords about a thousand miles per hour and kind of smiled at me and said, Now, how you like that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's cool. yeah. I got to talk to him, hang with him a little bit. He he was really a beautiful guy, and he had a day job too. Well, he didn't in San Francisco. He did in Indianapolis. I think he had like seven kids, eight kids. He was a a welder or something like that. Right, he worked all the time in Indianapolis. They uh, Carl Burnett, the great drummer, told me that. uh, that he would, he, when he would leave to go on road trips, uh, you know, when he would come back to San Francisco, uh, Monk and, and Carl held down the fort. He had a, he still had a room there. You know, when he would come back, he still had a room at the Booker T. Hmm. I didn't know that. You know, but the point, the point is that it was, it was like a family, Michael. I mean, isn't that the reality is that everybody f- was kind of pulling for each other. The, the money, oh, yeah. oh, the, yeah, money the money wasn't, the yeah. money was not, 
the money was just enough to have some a little bit of fun, and then you had to get back to writing the music again because you ran out of money. <laughs> but you know, when I got to San Francisco, and it was like 62, something like that, early 62 or 3, there was plenty of music, though. And uh, the Fillmore area, there was a, two or three clubs on every block for about six blocks. <laughs> Unbelievable, my God. Uh, Jackson Sutter Street was one of them. It was beautiful. You know? I uh, used to play with, uh, I was really trying to get into the music. This, You know, I'm finally like 21, 22, and I'm on my own and uh, sitting in everywhere I can. Uh, I met uh, Dewey Redman there. Dewey Redman was playing a lot like uh, Sonny Rollins at the time. I didn't know that he grew up with Ornette. And every now and then he would go off on this stuff, and I'm saying, what, what, what are you <laughs> <laughs> he said, "You'll hear it." <laughs> and later on, he took off and went with Arnett. I said, "Ah, that's what he's doing." <laughs> Did you? Uh, I was. I was going to say. I mean, the Fillmore District. You wound up down with those organ trios with with Groove Holmes and Merle Saunders. Is that how you met Merle originally? Yeah, yeah. You know the. Oh man, Jackson Sutter Street was amazing. They not only had music every night from nine to one uh there's they would open up again in the morning like at six o'clock and go to noon in between that i yeah, mean I w- there was a point that i worked seven days a week for about three years <laughs> and i used to go to all of jack's things because that's where I got to uh, play with all the organ players, and I ended up getting most of the morning gigs because the guys didn't want to get up in the morning. <laughs> so I got to work with... Actually, I did work with Merle, on, not only in that, but other stuff. And uh, Richard Groove Holmes, and, uh, of course, Chester Thompson. Man, that was, that was a joy. I mean, he was technically like a freak of nature. He was just ambidextrous. Could play uh, solo in one hand, chords in the other, and the bass line with his his feet. Uh, did you play with? Did you play in that trio with with Herschel Davis? Uh, the drummer. Yeah, the, he was because I know when I talked to Chester, he was playing with with Rudolph. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rudolph, I, I started playing with him when Rudolph left. Rudolph went to L.A. Exactly. And uh, he mentioned I, that Herschel Herschel was a he sang a lot and, and a lot of times in order to kind of, you know, be enough of an attractive fit. You had to be able to play instrumental music, but you also had to do, do the R&B and the kind of vocal stuff, too, to keep the audience more diverse. Yeah, but not so much at Jax, though. Jax was a jazz audience. Jax, they wanted to hear you swing, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did a few of them, but we... Uh, matter of fact, during that time, um, Chester got me started with that... Uh, uh, studying in this book, uh, oh man, uh, Contrapunal Technique. <laughs> and uh, we would study it, and he was using it on these Wayne Shorter tunes. You know, he was really stretching me, because most organ players just play blues-type chords. But Chester was doing force, more like McCoy Tyner and stuff, you know. And then we get to the... Uh, to the uh to the reason why I, I essentially started my show uh, on the uh, on the radio here, I, I Michael, I tried to do 
some politics for a while, some stuff that was uh, locally uh, that might um, resonate with some of the public. But then I realized I have to go towards my strength. I have to go towards my love of this time period when there were people like you and Benny Maupin and Dugu Chancellor, Woody Shaw and Chester Thompson. Mm. And you put out an album, uh, and I've talked about it with The Skipper, and I've talked about it with Ndugu, and now we get a chance to talk about it with you. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, the song was called The Call. Uh, I, we, we're going to play a, a rather long clip of it, and we might come back with, before the break, Michael, but I just want you to marinate in it and enjoy it, and then when we get a chance, we can break it down, okay? Great. All right now.
Thanks for, I mean, we got about a uh, couple minutes before we can come back after and talk about it, but thank you for being alive, man. Cause that, that, uh, when I talked to the skipper, he said, Michael kind of gave us a sketch of what he wanted, but Henry hadn't heard that since 73 and it blew his mind, man. Go take it away. Oh yeah. It was beautiful. I, I, yeah, just gave him a sketch. That's why I wanted them, uh, Henry and, and Dugu on this. They had done my first album and they, they just read my mind. I said, oh, I'm not going to tell them anything. Just let them do it. And and, and then Dugo brought it on, too. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Benny Moppin. Whoa. Holy. That's the, the that's a serpent. Like, uh, uh, whatever he was doing was just like, it was like a snake rising out of a, a genie or something. It was just incredible. And then you come in with, like, I, I hear psychedelic rock. I hear jazz. I hear blues. I hear, I mean, you do were doing everything. I mean, it's just, it was, you listen, Mike, I, I'm just, it's, it's an honor to have you on here. This is, like I said, the reason why I do this show. And uh, I don't want to rush into it. We're going to come back. We're going to listen to more music. We're going to keep talking about your career. So you just hang tight, my friend. We'll come back on the other side, okay? All right, great. CNN Radio, I'm Stan Case. The Occupy Wall Street protests have entered a fourth week in New York and spread to other cities around the country. This New Jersey grandmother explains why she's involved. I'm worried my son, about my grandchildren, about my neighbors. I just worry about decent people who want to work and can get a job. The demonstrators are protesting what they consider inequities in the U.S. financial system. 
Republican presidential hopeful Ron Paul has come up the winner of another straw poll. He got 37 percent of the votes at the Values Voters Summit, a gathering of social conservatives organized by the Family Research Council. Herman Cain was second at 23 percent. Major League Baseball's playoffs begin round two tonight in Arlington, Texas. The Rangers host the Detroit Tigers in game one of the American League Championship Series. And Oakland Raiders owner Al Davis died Saturday. He was 82. The most trusted name in news. This is CNN Radio. Hey, gingerbread man, you seem pretty burned. Acapulco? I wish. I got burned in the old oven again. Woo! Faulty thermostat, uneven heat. Hand me the lotion. Okay, except you know that's frosting. I thought it tasted pretty good. Time for a new stove? Come to the Sears Holiday Preheat Event now and save up to 20% on all Kenmore, up to 10% off Whirlpool and KitchenAid, plus an extra 10% off all appliances with your Sears card. Sears. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Kenmore savings range from 5 to 20% Whirlpool and KitchenAid from 5 to 10%. Offer valid 10 7 to 10 11 2011. At Advance Auto Parts, we don't do anything just part way. We go full throttle. We won't just sell you a few cans of oil. No, we'll sell you a five plus quarts junk. A Valvoline conventional motor oil for just $13.99 after $7 mail-in rebate. Then, we'll throw in a Pure Later Classic oil filter free. If wrestling a live bear would help us get you a better deal, we'd do it. While wearing salmon cologne. Service is our best part. Advance Auto Parts. Pre-rebate price $20.99. See store for details. I'm in the I-need-cordless-cutting shears to finish this vent work business. At Granger, we know what business you're in. I'm in the if-you-can-help-my-business-then-you'll-get-my-business business. The business of getting things done. That's why we offer over 900,000 products and the support you need to get your job done right and on time. Call, click Granger.com, or stop by one of our branches. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ray, technician from Safe Light Auto Glass. A chip is a thousand micro cracks waiting to spread. One big bump and crack. We'll have to replace the whole windshield. But not if we repair the chip first with Safe Light's exclusive resin. It bonds stronger and lasts longer than other resins, and we guarantee it for life. Plus, with most insurance plans, it's no cost to you. Call 1 800 800 2727 or go to safelight.com. Safe Light Repair, Safe Light Replace. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. As a passionate consumer of vinyl records, I value the art of collecting and archiving. So I have marked my calendar for Sunday, November 6th for the 7th Annual Tucson Record Show, located at Las Casuitas Event Center at I-10 in Grant. The show features vinyl collectors and dealers from all over the state. Doors open at 9 a.m. and tables are available for rent, but space is running out fast. For more information, contact Bruce Smith at 622-0104. The 7th Annual Tucson Record Show, 1365 West Grant and I-10, Sunday, November 7th. It's time to dig and get dirty. Don't miss it. Even the ancient Romans knew that music can soothe the savage beast. But what if there's a beast lurking in your old stereo? Maybe it's popping static, garbled distortion, a skip in the record, or worse, dead silence. Stereo Hospital can restore smooth sound to your receiver, amp, turntable, CD player, or speakers. At the same Midtown location, 4044 East Speedway, for 10 years, Stereo Hospital might be the last shop in town doing quick, guaranteed repairs on vintage and modern stereos. Owner Jeff Brucker has over 40 years' experience as an electronic technician, and he is happy to bring back the joy and memories only your music collection provides. 
Log on to StereoHospital.com or call 722-4610 or just bring that mean old stereo in today. Stereo Hospital at 4044 East Speedway inside Metronome Music near Alvernon to calm the beast. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. When it came time to decide where to buy my daughter a piano last year, the choice was easy. We got it at Hackenberg & Sons Piano Company. Located at 4333 East Broadway Boulevard, Hackenberg & Sons is Tucson's longest-running family-owned piano business. Run by three brothers and a son, they pride themselves on superior instruments and customer satisfaction. It's why they've been around so long. And it's why their pianos are used at the University of Arizona, Pima Community College, and many other prestigious institutions. So whether it's for your child, business, or yourself, when you buy a piano, make sure you go to Hackenberg & Sons. It'll be the beginning of a long-lasting partnership. For more information, visit them at hackenbergpiano.com. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Tucson was find authentic Chinese cuisine. After a tip from the Chinese Student Association, I headed over to Badar Chinese Restaurant. Well, it's been seven years, and I have never looked back. Located at 7321 East Broadway Boulevard, Badar has been a family-run operation since 1992. The award-winning chef produces succulent dishes from sizzling ginger chicken to salt and pepper shrimp. The thing that separates Badar from the rest is that the chef procures ancient oriental dishes with the exotic island flair of Taiwan. Most importantly, there are no gimmicks or razzle-dazzle at Badar. You won't find any flat-screen TVs or karaoke machines. Badar is a place to go enjoy good food and spend time with your family. It exudes peace and tranquility after a long week of work. So come down and check out Badar Chinese Restaurant. Hong Hao Chu, it's that good. you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of my show starts right now. Welcome back, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show. We're joined here today by legendary guitarist Michael Howe. Michael, welcome back. All right. You know, I just, I'm still reverberating from that, from that, that the, the call. And, you know, the idea of faith, faith played a big role in that. Uh, some people might say it's confidence, but for you to go in and see the guys and say, I'm just going to let them have at it and we'll turn it into something groovy, that takes faith. And I, I think that there was a spirit of the time in April 1974. Uh, yeah, musicians work together more often. And uh, that, that was a good time musically for me anyway. I mean, a lot of things were happening. You know, I that first part when I was got to San Francisco, I was trying to <laughs> just find my way in the music world. Actually, during that time, I got to play a little bit with George Duke, you know, with the group Pete Magadini. And, uh, I had no idea you played with, and you played with John Hurd, too? John Hurd with, oh, oh yeah, John Hurd and the, and the singer, the great singer. Al Jarreau. We all worked at this place called The Half Note, you know? I had no idea that you played guitar in those sessions. I did. I did some of those. I was I was working in that place before they were, and they came in after us. You got right? that is okay. I love these stories. So you were you played. So it actually turned into a quartet at, for a, for a while. I didn't work with them all the time because I was busy with another trio. So when I wasn't working, I would always. I loved the way George played. You know. <laughs> 
He's amazing, and 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 uh, you know, I I uh, I'm gonna if it's if if it's the last thing I do, I already I got John Hurd coming to Tucson in, in January, but at the end of the day, I'm gonna get Michael Howell and John Hurd to play in Tucson when it's all said and done, and Pete Magadini on drums. That's oh, the, that would be good. <laughs> well, it, it needs to happen, my friend. But you know, the other thing about this album that that has uh, caught my attention is the fact that um, your brother, I believe, Glenn, yeah. uh, he played bass on a couple of the tunes and. Uh, one of them is this song called Ebony King, and I have to tell you, I want to I want to listen to it, and 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 I am I want you to take us through musically, um, the the sensory uh, and the the lyricism and the and the melodic tendencies of you and Benny Mappin, because when my my daughter and I listen to this on the way to school every day, it kind of drives her crazy, but it's worth the listen. So let's check it out, and we'll come back and talk about it. Sure. are just uh listening to each other really beautifully oh yeah i hadn't heard that in a long time I, i'm glad i'm glad because you know i i listen to it every day and um 
what it shows me is it's there's a selflessness uh, and a, and a camaraderie, almost like a basketball team passing the ball back and forth. Uh, it's 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 beautiful, and uh, quite frankly, it's completely missing from our society today. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a tune that I wrote, uh, kind of dedicated to my father, who had died a few years before. He was a newspaper man in Kansas City. That's what he was was a writer. Wow. What, and, did, he, what uh, did he write about? You know, he wrote columns, uh, you know, just uh, anything he wanted, <laughs> really. Like, like commentaries? Like, yeah. Like yeah. Opi- okay, opinion columns. Like opinion that. columns and so forth. But you wrote Ebony, Ebony King for, for him. Well, uh, Ebony King was for uh, Martin Luther King, and the call was for my father. Oh, wow. Because, and not to mention, your brother was dropping bombs on that on that song as well. I mean, I just love... It's like a chugging locomotive, really. I, I, you know, I've been trying to get inside that session. Actually, on that one, let me see, that was Ebony King. Um, actually, I have to thank my brother for that because he was a, like an avant-garde musician. He was a DJ, but he worked with, with Anthony Braxton. Oh, wow. Had a group called Infinite, Infinite Sound, and they were, he's the one that turned me on to Cecil Taylor and a lot of making me listen to some other music. <laughs> I think he was playing the high parts on this, and uh, the skipper was pay- playing the low parts, you know. Yeah, exactly, because I was going to say, because it says Glenn Howell on Ebony King, but there's times in that song where I hear, I, I swear it's Henry playing. So <laughs> Yeah, both of them are playing, I think. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, um, uh, you know, just, uh, I promoted a concert in South Central uh, back in July, and, and uh, the person who gave it, the instant credibility that it got was the skipper. He, I, I came to him with the idea of doing a tribute to Gene Russell, the old black jazz founder. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, I, I, we, were, we got Calvin Keys to come down from the Bay Area and Carl Burnett on drums and Bob Pierce and and um, and also uh, George Harper on sax. And uh, you know, Michael it was like an out of body experience, but none of it would have been possible without the skipper. He, do you want to talk a little bit about? about oh, the that? skipper is amazing, man. You know, he was. Yeah, he's known in L.A. He's kind of like the godfather down there. He is. But he, as a musician, you know, he's one of those that just puts it in the pocket where it needs to be. You know, and he, he and Indugo are like a hand and glove, you know. They work so well together. I, do, I remember yeah, go ahead. my brother wasn't supposed to be on this session. Uh, on the, uh, the skipper's trip to uh, San Francisco, his base, was left or something happened. So I called my brother. <laughs> yeah. And he brought his bass, but then the skipper finally got his bass. He said, well, since both of you are here, right. <laughs> you might as well put you both on there. <laughs> and then and then, and then, then another unsung hero of that time period uh, is, is Kenneth Nash. I thought he added a tremendous amount of uh, percussion to... Oh, that. those colors that he put in there. Holy I, cow. I have to admit, you know, I'm, I'm not a really good studio musician, you know, uh, I'd love to see you. I'm lot, really man. nervous in studios, and you spend so much time getting it together, and you don't spend much time practicing. And every one of those guys were like so helpful. Uh, let's do this. Let's try this. What do you think about that? Or you know, and they were just so willing to make it make it right. You know, uh, I can't thank them enough for making that album happen. You know, I, you know, it, there's just it just it reeled me in, and and I couldn't. I was like, you know. The song that that got me was the call, and it was my call was to do this show, and I am I'm forever grateful to all of you on the album. I mean, I haven't got, Benny's coming on, although he's you know he's hard to get to, 
But I, but like I said, I mean, I played the song for Ndugu. I played it for the skipper. And in many ways, that was the impetus for the skipper to, he was so blown away by the fact that I even had this. And he, <laughs> and he, and he, yeah. and he hadn't even heard it since 73. He hadn't heard it since the session. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there, there wasn't this like over glorification. It was kind of like, okay, we cut that. Now we got to go, you know, we got to do this. We got these gigs to play. I, I just, people, you you had to sing for your supper, and you had to keep playing. Otherwise, someone else was probably going to take your, your your spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and then, so we we moved. One one question, one final, uh, just to put a button on this. Uh, can you can you talk about uh, what Oren Keep News meant to the black jazz community? What what he did as far as bringing those bringing you guys who were, you know, I don't know if you want to call yourself statesmen, but you were artists. What did Oren, Oren seemed to be a, a real spokesman and he was strong and I, but you, you knew him and I, I, I don't. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about him. Yeah, he, uh, you know, well, he's been around he was in New York for years. So he'd been around musicians. Uh, that's kind of what producers do know how to put certain musicians together to make them work. Uh, for instance, on the first uh, record I did for him, I wanted to use my working some of the musicians I had worked with. Well, I ended up using the horn players that work with me, but he says, well, you know, Hampton Hawes is in town, mm-hmm. and he has uh, the Skipper and Dugo. I knew him. I says, well, shoot, I can't go wrong with that. <laughs> 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 and it was beautiful. And and the Skipper and Ndugo worked so well. When I did the second, I said, hey, man, let's use them again. Ah, uh, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's bring such... It on, see, you know? Know, that was the thing, like... Uh... Well, everybody's got a little bit of a different recollection of this album, but I don't think I, there's no bigger fan of in the United States of this of any album in the silence. It is my number one album. Oh, thank you. Thank and, you. And, and and so then, of course, I continue to follow uh, along the trajectory of, of your career in the in the '70s, and uh, you wound up, um, you know, Pat Britt, who even though I think at the time he was based in Southern California, he said, you know, there's a bunch of cats in the in the Bay Area that really need to be recorded. And and it turned out that it you know he it was yourself and it was uh, you know Flip Nunez and and, and George Morobus and again we're getting into this sort of territory again of of huge figures you know guys that have passed and and but they were total guys that Jake Feinberg would have given his heart and soul for you know and mm-hmm. and you guys uh, you know uh, you know to me you know to to be able to see you guys and I guess it's Jigogu. In uh, in in Japantown, as Vince Latiano right, talked, right. you know, in the, in a quartet setting with double keyboards or an, an organ and a keyboard, can you talk a little bit about that band and the kind of and what you used to play to get everybody grooving? Yeah, Jigoku was uh, right in the Japan Center. There, there were like twenty two clubs, but all of them had Japanese music. And this guy that owned the Jigoku was in the basement. He was the only one that had jazz. And Flip Nunez, the pianist. And wonderful singer he was spearheading that, and I worked with him for about four years. Uh, and we worked every, well, you know, we worked five nights a week sometime down there, oh. and it was a nice crowd. We had uh, my brother played bass at some time. We had four or five bass players. Eddie Marshall played drums. Vince Laniano played with us. He sure did. No, we talked about that, and the and the, when that's what made me uh, lose my mind when he said that you were playing with, with Flip and with George. And um, it would swing. You know, he just, it was just a relaxed 
Flip had such a beautiful spirit. He would st- sit on the stage and just smile at people for 15 minutes, and everybody <laughs> had a good time. <laughs> and yeah. then he started playing, and it just got better, you know? Yeah, like Vince said that he, you know, he kind of had a rugged outlook, and, you know, he might be hard to approach if you just looked at him from the outside, but he was just a teddy bear. Yeah, yeah. You know, Vince, when I first saw him, was playing in a big band, and I said, what? I went up on the break and said, Vince, boy, you weird, man. You playing your butt off, but it's something strange. He had broken his wrist, and he was playing the drums with his left hand only. Oh, my. And he was still getting the sound? He was still, he get- was still getting the sound. I, and I said, boy, that, you got your own sound. <laughs> <laughs> the one-handed drummer. <laughs> but he was playing, that's all. <laughs> so, so, you know, you also, I mean, you, you did that solo album with Sama Layuka, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, and you talked about uh, sitting in the Keystone Corner and being able to see McCoy uh, play. And so, I mean, the reality is that Michael Howe, along with a lot of other musicians, I mean, you weren't just, you played seven nights a week, but there was also times, especially when you first moved out there, where you were actually going to the gigs yourself and, and, and sitting in and, and, and checking guys out. Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, <clears throat> and, I, of course, I had a car there, so it was easier to uh, do that, you know, cure yamp, and I that in every chance I got with anybody I could, you know. Uh, there was a drummer uh, that passed away, uh, Eddie Moore, that used to take me around in places. He introduced me to Coltrane, which was amazing. And uh, he, he, I, uh, he, he was related to Merle, wasn't he? Yeah, they were cousins. Yeah, and then, and then I heard this story in, about him actually having a heart attack and dying at Yoshi's. I mean, that t- on, on the stage, on the last tune playing a tune called Owl by Dizzy Gillespie. And it hit the last note, and he just fell backwards off the, off the drum. It's like a storybook death. I mean, it's not good. No, it's not, but it's kind of like, I'm sure he wouldn't have wanted to go out any other way. Yeah, yeah, you know. Can you talk a little bit about how you met? Uh, you know, I, I will admit, I mean, you know, uh, and it's, it's so great that I, you know, I, I, I love Jerry Garcia. I love The Grateful Dead. And then... I see on this album, this album that Merle did with John Kahn and and with with uh, Bill Vitt and, and oh yeah, yeah. And, and then all of a sudden I'm look I'm like down below it says guitar Michael Howell I'm like he gotta <laughs> be kidding me here he is again. <laughs> I mean what how did that was that a fa- was that sort of you had a contract with Fantasy or Merle? no 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 uh, I hadn't done anything with Fantasy at that time but you know San Francisco was a small place you know when I. I was in the service for four years, and when I came back in the 70s to San Francisco, the scene had changed. Uh, you know, Santana had gotten big, uh, great for all these groups. And so I met them all, and I had all these offers to play with different pop groups that I really didn't want to do that. I enjoyed them. I met all the Grateful Dead. You'd see them at uh, the music store and just hanging out. <laughs> and I used to do a few sessions with Merle. And I just came in and did one. He says, uh, Jerry's going to be on this, too. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, uh, yeah. how did it work? Like, I, I, on those sessions, I mean, Jerry would take a lead and you would take a solo. T- how would that work? I mean, essentially, with, if both of you were playing on one well, tune. Merle was really, he was a studio, did a lot of studio work. He would come in and I would jam with him. Then Jerry would come in and jam with him. Then we jammed together. And I think he would uh, splice together maybe, okay, I like Michael's part in this part and Jerry's part in this part and so forth and so on, you know. 
Yeah. I, did, I didn't really hear what it sounded like until it came out. You know, <laughs> it, it just it has it has you on there again, and and uh, it was just it made me crack up because I said this is this is totally. Uh, and then you, then you try to figure out well how did how did Mike know all these people, and and, and it makes sense. You come back and. It's kind of it seems sort of antithetical to say that San Francisco w- w- is a small city at the time it must have been small. Now it seems like it's somewhat of a veritable nightmare just to even park there. You had a car. <laughs> Most people they throw their car in the, in the bay, you know, now. They, they you can't even park for se- less than 700 bucks a month. So, things were so much more open and it seemed like um obviously, you know, the you know, like the skipper said, he he cut grazing in the grass with 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 uh Masakela. Kayla, they, yeah. they, they partied, they, they spent the money, and then they had to get their butts back to the studio to play to make more music. I mean, it didn't you didn't make ten million bucks right off the bat. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, then at some point, uh, again, uh, my my uh, ventures with Michael Howell continue into the mid seventies, and a guy that I didn't, I just never paid attention to Dizzy Gillespie as far as. Uh, you know, just the personality, not just the sound, but also just the personality. And then I began to uh, explore uh, Mike Longo, the piano player, and and he had uh, Al Gaffa and and, mm-hmm. Mickey, and Mickey Roker. So then I started to go after. So I did the In the Silence con- uh, contingent, and then I started to go after Dizzy's band or Mike Longo's band, however you want to refer to it as, uh, from the from the early to mid to early seventies. And then in seventy five, Dizzy did the album Ba Hyena. Mm-hmm. And and there I listened to Olinga, twenty minute version of Olinga, and there is Michael Howell's guitar. I wish I could we could play that right now. <laughs> but but uh, what what can you what can you uh, relate about those sessions? I mean, did you guys did you guys go out after and have a good time? I mean, it just seemed like there must have been some kind of chemistry. But well, Dizzy always has a good time. <laughs> I know, but I mean, what does that mean? I mean, did, did he? Did he? What happened on on that session? I had met Dizzy before. You know, I I used to see him all the time in San Francisco because he used to hang out at the club. So he knew me. He just uh, and he finally heard me playing uh, at the Monterey Jazz Festival. He says, "I'm going to call you someday." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, all right, okay." <laughs> yeah. But I gave him the number. Yeah, he did though. And one day uh, the phone rang, and I, I wasn't there, and I got the message that somebody called. I think his name is Dizzy, but he didn't leave a number. So I called the record company. I knew he was with Pablo. And Norman Grant said, yeah, that was Dizzy. He says, look, we're waiting for you. Catch a plane on down to L.A. <laughs> and I called a plane. I got there, and they were in the studio. And Dizzy says, it was Al Gaffer. Well, you, know, you have the album. Al Gaffa, Mickey Roker, uh, Earl May on bass. Earl May, yeah, which was different. Roger Let's... Glenn. Roger Glenn, yeah. Uh, Doug, I do. I, I seriously, if I need to to mellow out, if it's been a hard day, uh, I, I can just throw on a linga and and you ha- you are naturally for naturally forced doesn't make a lot of sense. You have you naturally have to slow down because it's so drawn out and it's so beautiful the way it's. The, oh yeah, it would. You know, and Dizzy says, I says, well, what, what do I do? He says, uh, he says, you'll hear it. And we went through a tune, and he's another one. And he, <laughs> I says, I didn't get that. He says, oh, you'll hear it. <laughs> you'll hear it. Don't worry, dude. <laughs> We're going through all this stuff, you know. And I says, oh, I think I got it, boy. When we do it again, I'm going to nail it. <laughs> and I heard Norman Grant says, oh, that's a rap, Dizzy. I said, a rap? 
I thought we were rehearsing. <laughs> really? <was> record. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, you know what? It came out pretty darn good, man. In our in our remaining couple minutes with uh, Michael Howe, Mike, I just wanted. I know you mentioned uh, you're kind of you turned full time back into music, and I wanted to talk about what your future vision uh, of this next chapter of your career holds for the uh, the rest of us, because I'm sure anxious about it. I went in the studio uh, not too long ago and uh, uh, did some stuff. It's, I got to clean it up a little bit, <laughs> uh, but hopefully I'll have this out uh, within the within next year. You know. And I'm I'm playing more. I just came back from uh, Peru, uh, what is it, Paraguay. I worked off and on with Jimmy Owens, the trumpet player. Oh wow! I've been working with him actually off and on for about 20 years. Done a number of tours with him. And uh, and I'm trying to decide if I want to <laughs> really push a, a group or do solo again. You know, because work is kind of weird. Work is weird, but Michael, I'll tell you. I love I love the interplay with musicians, though. You know. Well, the, I mean, that's why we played Ebony King because the 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 the, uh, the call and and um, and response between you and and Benny was just it's just brilliant. And and I I would I would be one to say, uh, as long as we stay in touch, man, I'll always be pushing for a a quintet or a quartet from you, man, because I think that it's your selflessness and it's and it's your love of the of the team concept that uh shines through on these records and and has really allowed me to 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 fall in love with jazz and and so michael i i just can't thank you enough for being a part of the show man and uh and stay in touch and, and keep it real man i'm glad you enjoy it and thank you for uh calling me you know you got it my friend this is the jake feinberg show everybody we'll see you next saturday on kjll the jolt KJLL, South Tucson. CBS News, I'm Sam Litzinger. It's another test of how popular or unpopular the GOP presidential contenders are with self-described social conservatives at the so-called Valley.